Just a quick disclaimer before we start, this podcast was recorded before John Barillaro's resignation as Deputy Premier. If you're Australian, young, somewhat politically conscious and have a YouTube account, there's a good chance you've heard of Jordan Shanks, the man behind the Friendly Geordies YouTube channel. The chances are high, therefore, that you've probably heard of the defamation lawsuit against him, placed by none other than the Deputy Premier of New South Wales, John Barillaro. In an episode last season, we referred to the perception of New South Wales as the defamation capital of Australia, and even the world. But it's probably once in a blue moon that we get to see a YouTuber in a defamation case, and a well-known one at that. Welcome to Footnotes, a legal podcast for students, by students, breaking down the law and all its complexities one chat at a time. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. If you're a new listener, then we hope you enjoy your time here. It has, after all, been a while since we last spoke. I'm Justin. And I'm Jacinda. And we'll be your hosts for this episode. Today, we will be discussing the defamation case between John Barillaro and Jordan Shanks. Now, this case is currently before the federal court, so we won't be commenting on our opinion on the proceedings. Instead, what we're going to focus on are the noteworthy decisions made by the court in the process leading up to the trial, particularly the decision made by the trial judge to strike elements of Shanks' defense. If you've done your research, you'll know that Shanks is relying on, to put it bluntly, the truth. We'll be unpacking what those defenses are, why they exist, and their involvement in defamation law broadly, with the help of our resident expert, Professor David Rolfe. In doing so, we hope to give you a clear portrait of what's going on in the wild, wild world of defamation. So, what are the facts of the case? The two parties in dispute are Jordan Shanks, also known as Friendly Geordies, and John Barillaro. On the defence, we have Shanks, who is a famous Australian YouTube personality, currently on around half a million subscribers as of September 2021. He produces comedic, usually political content, which often attacks the current Liberal government at both the state and federal level. He often presents extensive research and data to back up his claims, going so far as interviewing several Labour MPs in his videos. So that's the defendant. The plaintiff is John Barillaro, who is the current Deputy Premier and the leader of the Nationals in New South Wales. He assumed office as the Deputy Premier in 2016 under the second Berejiklian Ministry, and he has been in Australian politics since 2008, when he was elected as an independent councillor of the Queen Bean City Council. So, what exactly happened? In 2020, Shanks released two videos on YouTube titled Bruz and Secret Dictatorship, both of which portray Barilaro as a, quote, corrupt con man, unquote. The videos present two significant legally contested claims, which are that Barilaro has committed perjury nine times, and that he practiced pork barreling on multiple occasions as Deputy Premier. Pork barreling, for those who don't know, is when government spending is funneled into projects specifically intended to generate political support, often in a politician's own electorate. It's viewed negatively as an inappropriate use of taxpayer money. Barilaro, in his response, has come forward calling the videos vile and racist, quote-unquote, claiming that they have brought him into, quote-unquote, public disrepute, odium, ridicule, and contempt. He is suing Shanks, if it isn't obvious, for defamation. 
Before we get into the legal case itself, for context, it should be noted that there are two other semi-related cases to this suit, which are still ongoing. So one, Barilaro is running a similar suit against Google, the owner of YouTube, for their failure to remove the videos. And two, Barilaro is also involved in a criminal case around Shank's producer, Christo Lenka. Earlier this year, Lenka was arrested by the Fixated Persons Investigation Unit for stalking and intimidating Barilaro. The Fixated Persons Unit is supposed to deal with dangerous lone actors as a countermeasure to terrorism. Both cases are still running, but they just will not be the focus of this episode. It should also be noted in terms of the legal representation, Barilaro has employed the services of senior counsel Sue Crisanthu, a high-profile defamation lawyer. Crisanthu has defended Jeffrey Rush, Greens MP Sarah Hansen-Young, and was recently restrained from acting for Christian Porter, in this case against the ABC. Now, onto the legalities of the defamation suit. So Shanks has invoked several particular defences to the defamation claims. The first is the truth defence, formerly known as the justification defence, which is contained in the Defamation Act of 2005, Section 25, which states that it is a defence to the publication of defamatory matter if the defendant proves that the defamatory imputations carried by the matter of which the plaintiff claims are substantially true. So, to sort of demystify this, Shanks intended to prove that Barilaro was actually guilty of what he claimed. That is to say, perjury, pork barreling, and corruption on a general scale. The key question here, at least for the court, um, is the imputation of that claim. So, would a reasonable person believe the specific imputation required for a claim to be defaming? The next defense is that of contextual truth, which is contained in the Defamation Act 2005, Section 26, Subsection 1A to B. It is a defence of the publication of defamatory matter if the defendant proves that the matter carried one or more imputations that are substantially true, that is to say, contextual imputations, and any defamatory imputations of which the plaintiff complains that are not contextual imputations and are also carried by the matter do not further harm the reputation of the plaintiff because of the substantial truth of the contextual imputations. Now that's a lot of information, but if we're to sort of translate that, Shanks intended to prove that Barilaro was guilty of other acts, which he did that, you know, weren't necessarily contested in the defamation claims, and that that acts were more severe than the acts that he's currently being sued for. The last um, defense in question is that of um, honest opinion, formerly known as fair comment, and that's contained in the Defamation Act at section 31. So it is a defense to the publication of defamatory matter if the defendant proves that a. the matter was an expression of opinion of the defendant rather than a statement of fact, and b. the opinion related to a matter of public interest, and c. that the opinion is based on proper material. So if we were to map that onto the case one last time, Shanks honestly believed that as a matter of public interest, Barilaro should be in jail for the crime of perjury. Importantly, and I think this is in many ways the crux of this case, he claimed that with regards to the defaming claims of perjury, he could not substantiate his defence without the courts impeaching or questioning the statements made in Parliament. Shanks's lawyers in the hearing asked for this privilege to be waived, this did not happen by the courts, New South Wales parliaments, or Barilaro's own capacity. 
and in this event, Shanks' lawyers argued that he could not receive a fair trial. So that all presents a lot of questions, a lot of concepts that the you know average law student and even the average person may not necessarily be familiar with. And it seems that on the surface, what's happening is ostensibly unfair, that a significant part of you know a citizen's defense is being struck out purely because a politician exercises a particular right that is basically untouchable. These are all questions that we brought to Professor Rolf to see if there were any constitutional backing behind them, what the logistics were as to why this was the case, and importantly, what really was going to happen as a result of these decisions. Professor Rolf, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Can you explain to me the uh, justification defense and its historical significance? So justification is the sort of technical name for truth. So truth is complete defense to defamation. So um, if you tell the truth about someone, um, you don't defame them. So um, the way that um, defamation law thinks about this is that um, you're only entitled to the reputation that you deserve. So if you've been going along in your life and people have thought well of you and you're actually a disreputable person in fact and someone tells the truth about you, then they haven't done you a legal wrong. Um, it just that means that your reputation is recalibrated down to the level that it should always have been at and the nice ride is over. So truth is a complete defence. So that wasn't the position in um, New South Wales for most of its history. Um, so from 1847 until 2005, when the National Uniform Defamation Laws came into effect, truth alone wasn't a complete defence. You needed either to prove initially public benefit in what you were publishing or that there was a public interest under the 1974 Act. Um, and so that was interesting because it provided a sort of indirect protection of privacy, which is something that the common law has been very slow to develop across its history. Interestingly, in other jurisdictions in the Commonwealth, like the UK, Canada and New Zealand, which were all developing sort of privacy protection, there's now, I think, a live question about whether privacy overlaps with defamation law, particularly whenever it comes to the publication of true statement. But from the perspective of defamation law, truth is a complete defence, and that's what justification is. Thank you for that. And the natural branching off point then, especially when it comes to reading up on a lot of the contemporary cases of defamation that have been hitting the news, you know, since last year and this year, a lot has been raised about the contextual truth defense. Um, What would be the clarification with regards to the difference between truth and contextual truth as defenses? And what is the, therefore, the historical significance of the contextual truth defense? So this all gets back to essentially the way in which you plead a case. So um, a very basic point of litigation Uh, is that the defence, in order to be a good defence, has to meet the plaintiff's pleaded case. So uh, if a plaintiff pleads that they say that the defamatory matter means a particular thing, then a defendant, according to justification, would have to justify the particular meaning that was pleaded by the plaintiff. And if they didn't do that, then they would fail to make good a defensive justification. But of course, when you try and distill what words mean, which is really what's at the centre of uh, defamation law, you can always have a debate about what the words actually mean. And it may sometimes be very unfair if the plaintiff only selects uh, certain types of meanings or extracts certain meanings from the defamatory matter and complains about that. 
So the defense of contextual truth is an attempt to overcome that. So contextual truth says the plaintiff pleads certain meanings and they're defamatory. The defendant can then look at the defamatory matter and identify other meanings that the plaintiff doesn't rely upon even if they're completely unrelated to the imputations that the plaintiff relies upon. And the defendant can prove those contextual imputations are true. And so the question then for the tribunal of fact is, what's worse about the plaintiff's reputation, the defamatory imputations that the plaintiff has established or the contextual imputations that the defendant has established are true about the plaintiff? And so the question then becomes a weighing of the true and the false. And so if the true contextual imputations that the defendant has established are worse for the plaintiff's reputation, then the defendant has a complete defence. So the sort of classic example of how this would operate is sort of derived from an example given by Lord Dennings in the House of Lords in a case called Plato Films and Spidel. So if you have a newspaper article which says that someone uh, is a, a terrorist, a paedophile, and steals from a church offertory plate. And the plaintiff only pleads the imputation that they steal from a church offertory plate. Then it's open to the defendant to say, well, actually, we also say that you're a paedophile and a terrorist. And if they can prove that, in fact, the plaintiff is, in fact, a paedophile and a terrorist, then the question for the court would be, is it worse to defame someone by saying falsely that they stole from a church offertory plate? Uh, or to say truly about this person that they're in fact a paedophile and a terrorist? And so a court would very obviously come to the conclusion there that the person is a very disreputable person in the first place. And so no further injury is done to their reputation by saying that they steal from a church offertory plate, even if it's untrue. So the defense of contextual truth is really interesting because it undermines one of the sort of central things of defamation law, which is that the plaintiff carves out the arena for dispute. So there's, at common law, you can't compel someone to complain about a defamatory meaning in a defamatory matter. So the starting point for common law is the plaintiff gets to choose which imputations they want to complain about. And so if there's something that they don't want to complain about, then that's a matter for the plaintiff. The statutory defence of contextual truth actually allows a defendant to look at the defamatory matter and identify imputations that the plaintiff has not complained about and prove those are in fact true and thereby obtain a complete defence. I think especially when we were doing our research into that, that was a particularly tricky minefield to navigate, especially with regards to um, the similarities, at least at a surface level, between the claims that have been proven. So thanks for the clarification. Sorry, I just should say about that. I mean, one of the things looking at contextual truth, and this is um, with the way in which contextual truth was drafted in the 2005 Act meant that contextual truth didn't actually work very effectively at all. So uh, one of the things that we've seen over the last 15 years increasingly is that contextual truth has not actually worked as a defence. Um, for reasons that you don't really need to go into, um, but um, hopefully the reforms which have come into effect from the 1st of July this year, which reformulate that defence, will now mean that contextual truth will actually start to operate properly. So over the last sort of decade or so, um, it's not really been very effective as a defence, but hopefully now that um, we've tidied the wording up of it, um, it will again be a sort of workable defence. But that's the way it should work. The way that I've explained it is the way that it should work.
Yeah, I, I definitely understand that. So moving on to, I think, the last of the defenses which are relevant to the case of Shanks, which is the honest opinion defense. Yeah. Um, could we go a little bit into that and a bit about its historical significance? Because you, I think, have previously made statements about the honest opinion defense in public. You've said things like, you know, that the difficulty arises when the idea is translated into legal principle or that, you know, people in ordinary everyday speech and writing don't usually set out their facts and then express a view on those facts. Could you sort of almost unwind your approach a little bit to this concept? And how would you maybe apply that to a broader understanding of the honest opinion defense? So fair comment as it initially sort of was at common law, and now it's called honest opinion in the UK and under statute in Australia. You know, the idea of an opinion or a comment defense, you know, embodies a sort of fairly fundamental idea, which we can all subscribe to, and I think most people in a liberal democracy would accept, which is that people should be entitled to express their opinions about matters of public interest and that they shouldn't be inhibited from doing that by threat of litigation for defamation. And so fair comment is supposed to embody, honest opinion is supposed to embody a protection of freedom of speech. It's supposed to be a defence that's, you know, particularly protective of that interest. Um, but because of its technicality, it becomes difficult to sort of translate that ideal or that principle into effective legal protection. So the way that both of the defences, the common law and the statutory defences work is that the, there needs to be a statement of uh, comment as opposed to a statement of fact. And so that's assessed not by the subjective intention of the person who's speaking, um, it's by how the ordinary reasonable reader would understand that statement. So um, the statement needs to be recognised by the ordinary reasonable reader as being a statement of comment. So you then need uh, that comment to relate to a matter of public interest. So uh, you can comment publicly on matters of public interest. You can't gratuitously invade someone's privacy and make that the subject of comment. Um, and the statement of comment has to be uh, based on a substratum of fact, which is either expressly stated, referred to, or notorious. And so the reason that you need there to be some um, substantially accurate substratum of fact that supports your opinion is that the latitude that we give people to express their opinions, to express their comments on matters of public interest, is only of value if people who receive those comments or opinions can make an assessment for themselves as to whether or not they agree with them. So this is based on very sort of million ideas, uh, you know, John Stuart Mill's ideas of free speech and, you know, the truth-seeking function of free speech. So you've got to get your facts right, and then you have great latitude as to whatever comment you derive from the facts that are, you know, accurately stated. And so you can be as prejudiced or as willful or as, um, you know, wrongheaded as you like, just so long as you get your facts right, because then people can assess the quality of their comments that you make. So the problem, of course, here is that once you sort of started to set that out, there are all kinds of traps and snares for people that they can sort of fall into along the way. The public interest aspect of it is not usually the sort of problematic bit, um, because public interest is usually defined fairly broadly and beneficially. But what's more difficult is for something to be a statement of fact or a statement of comment. So that can often be a difficult thing to ascertain because 
you know, it's all a very contextual fact specific type of inquiry. Um, so there's no sort of magic formula. So you can't just say that something is a statement of comment because someone starts off the sentence by saying, in my view, or it's my opinion, because you could make all kinds of factual assertions that are quite defamatory about someone. Um, so defamation law is not very into sort of magic formula. Um, but also the factual substratum is also, you know, another snare for someone who wants to rely on a defensive comment. Um, so you start with this sort of idea that, you know, the defense of fair comment is really important as a protection of free speech. But once you actually start to see uh, the elements of the defense, it becomes uh, a bit more problematic. Right. I think, yeah, that's a, that's a good clarification of those ideas. Thank you very much, Professor. With regards to uh, the history of defamation law across New South Wales, you've come on the podcast before and you've spoken about the idea that you know, New South Wales is a place where a lot of defamation does occur. And thus it would be important to consider the idea that you know, defenses are somewhat available to um, a defendant so that they, for example, can protect themselves. What are some examples of cases which were important historically for defenses broadly, and maybe even specifically with regards to, for example, the defenses we're speaking about? What were some maybe watershed moments that helped define and outline what could and couldn't be done? with regards to this field of law? Yeah, so look, I mean, that's a, that's a very broad question. Um, so in terms of um, contextual truth and contextual truth defences, not sure how many major sort of cases there have been that have sort of been watershed cases. I mean, there have been cases in which defences of truth and contextual truth have been important, which I think illustrate how they sort of work. I mean, in, in operation, one of the real difficulties, I think, of um, justification um, is the tricky issue of uh, when a statement of fact is one uh, in fairly general terms, how do you go about um, justifying that? Um, so there's a great case um, from the noughties uh, called Channel 9 and Ilveri, where the imputation in question was the plaintiff is a you know, shonky builder. So this person um, who sued ran a building company. Four disgruntled clients of this builder went on a current affair and they all complained that he was a shonky builder. And so on one analysis, if you say that someone is a shonky builder, that would seem to be a statement of comment. That would seem to be an evaluation of the quality of that person's work. But in the context of this uh, report on a current affair, the trial judge here in the New South Wales Court of Appeal upheld this. The proper construction of that particular statement was that that was actually an assertion of fact, not a, a statement of comment. And so because it was properly understood by the ordinary reasonable viewer to be a statement of fact, it had to be justified. It had to be proven to be true. And so one of the difficult issues with that is if you say the plaintiff is a shonky builder, how many examples of shonky building do you need to prove true in order to justify that imputation? Now, of course, there's no magic in it, um, but here, um, the four people went on to give evidence. They'd also given that evidence before a current affair, but then they gave the evidence in a court of law. And here, the trial judge said, well, we've got four instances here where they've proven that the work that they had done was substandard. So therefore, on the basis of these four instances, it was substantially true that this plaintiff was a shonky builder. 
Um, there's a fascinating case called Google and Duffy, which is one of the major sort of search engine cases. And the imputation there was that the plaintiff is a psychic stalker. Um, so the plaintiff had sued Google because um, when you typed in her uh, name into Google, the autocomplete search suggested her name connected with psychic stalker. Um, and the court there at first instance and upheld on appeal was found that at best she'd only stalked one psychic. Um, and so therefore you can't, it's not substantially true to say that someone's a psychic stalker if they've only stalked one psychic. Not sure whether that's necessarily gonna be able to be subjected to close sort of scrutiny. But that I think has been a sort of significant issue in relation to cases involving justification. Um, Contextual truth is difficult because contextual truth is very difficult to make out. So, I mean, the landmark case in New South Wales in relation to contextual truth is a case called Fairfax and Commode. And that deals with the issue that we were, uh, that I mentioned in passing, which has now been resolved by legislation. So uh, one of the things that contextual truth operated to do um, was allow the defendant to plead back the plaintiff's own imputation. So justification and contextual truth operate or should operate as sort of complementary defences. So if the defendant's able to justify all of the plaintiff's imputations, then the defendant obviously has a complete defence. But what about the situation where the defendant can only plead or prove to be true two of the plaintiff's pleaded five, five pleaded imputations? So there are still three false imputations. What used to happen with contextual truth uh, before Fairfax and Commode in 2011, and what can now uh, happen under after the 1st of July this year, is that the defendant can plead back the plaintiff's own imputations as the defendant's contextual imputations. And whichever of those imputations that they can prove to be true, they can then rely on for their own defence of contextual truth and you balance the true and the false. And so, the idea of contextual truth in its proper operation is that it's a sort of fallback position in case your complete defense of justification fails. What Fairfax and Commode uh, decided in 2011 was because of the wording of the legislation as it was enacted in New South, across Australia, in fact, um, in 2005, was that you couldn't plead back imputations as the plaintiff's own imputations as contextual imputations because a contextual imputation needed to be in addition to the plaintiff's imputation so that they had to be separate from uh, the plaintiff's imputation. So you couldn't have that practice which had grown up of pleading back. So that's meant that for the last decade, contextual truth has really been a dead letter of a defence. And so hopefully now with the reforms, um, that will mean that that can work. Um, in terms of comment cases, I mean, the major thing about comment cases in Australia historically is that there have been a number of instances where you would sort of think that a defence of fair comment should work, and yet um, defences of fair comment have sort of spectacularly failed. Um, so Harry Seidler, the architect, uh, sued Patrick Cook, the cartoonist, back in the 1980s, very famously over a cartoon that uh, Patrick Cook drew um, satirising uh, Harry Seidler's sort of modernist artwork. And one would have thought that that would be a sort of classic example of a sort of fair comment defence uh, that failed. 
uh, Australia has had, particularly in New South Wales, a string of cases where people have done restaurant reviews dating back to sort of Leo Schofield in the late 1980s. But even more recently, the John Fairfax and Gatchich litigation, which uh, went from the review in 2004 up into the costs decision in 2016. Um, so some people would have done the whole of their schooling within that time. Um, that's how long the litigation went on for. There have been a number of instances where restaurant reviews have meant that the owners of the restaurants have been able to get substantial damages for defamation. And you would have thought that ordinarily a restaurant review is preeminently sort of the exercise of a right to fair comment. The person goes to the restaurant, the critic goes to the restaurant, they make an assessment of what they think about the food, the ambience, the decor, uh, and they provide their unexpurgated view for, for readers. And so particularly people from overseas jurisdictions sort of find that to be a sort of quirk of Australian defamation law that you might actually be sued for a restaurant review um, because that's just not really something that happens in many overseas jurisdictions. But it's a testament to the robustness of Australian defamation law and the liveliness of our litigation culture. Now, we will be discussing a similar case that has been in the media recently, the Christian Porter case. So here's a quick summary of the facts in case you've forgotten. On the 26th of February 2021, the ABC published the details of a letter which had been sent to the Prime Minister and several other members of Parliament alleging that a 16-year-old girl had been raped in Sydney in 1988 by a man who was now a member of Cabinet. That letter was anonymous and contained a statement from the victim, who had taken her own life in Adelaide in June 2020. This occurred before New South Wales Police could properly investigate the claim, as the victim had closed the case shortly before. Now, the letter did not name Porter, then the Attorney General, and neither did the article covering it, but Porter later stepped forward and publicly announced that he was the minister at the centre of the allegations. He later announced that he would be suing the ABC and the journalist who published the article Louise Milligan for defamation. Now, the reason for the suit was, according to Porter's lawyers, that he was easily identifiable to many as the subject of the allegations, and that the ABC deliberately intended to place him in a trial by media. A statement of claim lodged in the federal court by his lawyers observes that, quote, Milligan acted with malice, knowing the impossibility of any finding of guilt or civil liability in the circumstances, and believing that a public campaign designed to damage his reputation would be a more effective substitute against Porter in replacement of the processes of the justice system. The ABC strenuously denied the allegations, stating that the article did not suggest guilt, nor were they willing to plead truth to the suggestions of guilt. Of course, it is well known that the suit was famously settled. No money was exchanged, and the original article remains unchanged, save for an editor's note stating that it did not intend to suggest Mr. Porter had committed the alleged offence. The defences raised by the ABC, importantly, have been redacted and sealed by the court, Justice Jane Jagot noting that 27 pages consisting of the ABC's defence should be removed to prevent prejudice to the proper administration of justice, quote-unquote. We do know their basic qualities, though. One which we haven't mentioned that features is qualified privilege, which is a media defence to fairly and accurately report on proceedings of public concern. We hope that's caught you up on the Porter case. Now back to the matters at hand. I'm going to move on to a bit of a tangent. And I want us to consider the recent suit by Christian Porter against the ABC. 
um, not necessarily from a content perspective, but maybe more so from the state of affairs that it ended up creating and the manner in which it ended up sort of dissolving. We broadly know, I think it was reported, the basic nature of the defenses against uh, um, Christian Porter, those are things like qualified privilege, um, truth, and a bit of contextual truth, and um, I think importantly, implied freedom of political communication. Um, to the, say, you know, to the layman or to maybe even the average law student who hasn't encountered defamation at all at their time at school and study, how might um, the situation presented in the Porter case differ to the case of Shanks, the one that we're looking at right now? Well, I mean, the issues are obviously sort of different because the imputations are, you know, um, much more serious in the Porter litigation. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's, I think, an obvious sort of difference. Um, you obviously don't have an attempt in, to suppress the defence. In the Shanks case, you have strike out of particulars of um, the justification and the comment defence because of parliamentary privilege, but you don't have a suppression of the particulars of the defence of qualified privilege, um, which is what you have in the, or had in the Porter case. Um, and as yet, you don't have um, the very interesting point about the implied freedom of political communication, or, or at least I'm not sure that we have yet. I haven't checked the pleading on this, but the implied freedom point in the Porter litigation was very interesting because what Justin Gleeson was arguing in that case was that the implied freedom of political communication, which so far has only really had the effect in defamation law of uh, extending and adapting the common law qualified privilege defence to create what's known as a shorthand um, long equalified privilege. What Gleeson was arguing on behalf of the ABC was that the implied freedom of political communication should have the effect of mitigating any damages payable to Porter uh, because he was a politician and so therefore his reputation was going to be vindicated, if at all, principally at the ballot box. And so that argument, I think, was really interesting. Unfortunately, it never sort of ran because it would have done two things. One, it would have um, dealt with the issue about what sort of expectation politicians could have when they sue for defamation. Um, and a feature of Australian political life is that politicians of all political persuasions are very disposed to threaten to sue or, in fact, sue for defamation. Um, so it's not at all a party political thing. You can point to you know, politicians from the Labor Party, from the Nationals, from the Liberal Party, um, from the Greens. So Sarah Hanson-Young, very famously this year, has sued um, or had the full federal court decision in her proceedings against David Lyhelm. And previously, she'd sued Zoo Magazine as well, uh, the now defunct Zoo Magazine. And so one of the things that I think would have been interesting about the arguments in Porter's case about the implied freedom of political communication was whether that would have an effect on damages, which might have been a disincentive for politicians in Australia to sue for defamation. Um, but the broader sort of point, which I think would have been interesting about the implied freedom had that argument run, was that it would have suggested that the implied freedom of political communication had an argument or had an operation beyond just longly qualified privilege. Um, and if you go back to long in the ABC, one of the sort of fundamental uh, principles that emerges from that case of general application is that 
the common law, just like statute, is subject to the constitution, including any implications derived from it, including the implied freedom of political communication. And so if that's correct, and you know, a judgment of seven members of the High Court suggests that it is, then that means that it seems unlikely that uh, it's only a qualified privilege that would need to extend and adapt to accommodate the implied freedom of political communication as part of ensuring that defamation law in Australia is consistent with the implied freedom. So that aspect of it, I thought, would have been very interesting to have sort of teased out, but of course, we never got to that. And of course, we never got to actually make an assessment of the quality of the ABC's defence, because of course, um, we can never know the content of what was in the defence. So we can never really make an assessment as to whether they acted reasonably in relation to the publication, which would have been central both to a statutory qualified privilege defence as well as um, long qualified privilege. So I think the Porter litigation raises beyond the issues of identification, which we haven't touched upon, I think it also, uh, in terms of defences, raises really some very interesting constitutional questions and issues relating to qualified privilege. I think sort of as a second, slightly smaller, like sort of supplementary question, the fact that Christian Porter himself ended up dropping the charges was something that a lot of um, media commentators and a lot of people in the you know, broader community um, saw as like a concession that he, that, that he would think that he may, you know, may have lost the case or would have destroyed his reputation had all the facts ended up coming into the clear. What could we anticipate in that respect for, you know, John Barrow in this situation? Mm. You know, he, it's pretty clear that he intends to follow through on the lawsuit. A lot of the conduct that has emerged or at least has been reported on as a result, for example, of the proceedings have quite clearly been controversial. Like, do you think that he'll, you know, push through, you know, follow through on the litigation or will he maybe drop out at some point like Porter did? Well, look, I mean, it's not particularly sort of, you know, novel, but I mean, the judge for whom I worked always used to remind parties that all litigation is risky. And, you know, particularly something like defamation law where you, no one forces you to sue for defamation. So um, it's a choice that you sort of make and you decide what aspects you're going to sue on. Um, it's not like being a criminal accused where you have to defend yourself or your liberty is at stake. This is something that you voluntarily choose to do. Um, and there are all kinds of risks. And you can't necessarily control what comes out about you in contested litigation. And so, you know, it's always risky, I think, to proceed with something because you never know what the other side has. So, I mean, I don't really want to talk too much about the Barilaro case, obviously, because it's before the courts. But I mean, if we reflect upon something like, you know, the Porter case, one of the things that I think that I'm not sure people have fully appreciated, but, you know, it was high stakes for both sides. Um, and what the ABC did with the way in which they put on their defence was a high stakes manoeuvre. They raised the stakes and they made the stakes very high for Porter. And Porter blinked first. Um, and, you know, he decided um, that it was more important not to have any of those untested, controversial allegations out in public where he couldn't control them. That was a forensic tactic that the ABC engaged in. People engage in all kinds of legitimate forensic tactics all the time. Um, you know, Porter had raised the stakes. The ABC raises the stakes again. Porter blinks first. Um, I don't think any of this is sort of surprising because this is what in 
high stakes high stakes litigation. This is, these are the sorts of tactical decisions that people have to make. Now, it was high stakes for the ABC in the sense that there was a very real chance that if um, Porter hadn't discontinued his action and the strikeout application went on, there was always the possibility that a large number of those particulars might have been struck out on the basis that they were scandalous or vexatious or oppressive or any of the other grounds under the federal court rules that you can do that. And so that would have looked very bad for the ABC and that would have had an adverse cost consequence. Um, and it would also have led to a very sound basis for Porter claiming aggravated damages. So this is what happens in litigation. You have to make you have to make forensic choices. You have to know what the consequences of your forensic choices are. Um, and sometimes you just have to have a bit of ticker about those sorts of things. It's, you know, high stakes litigation is not for the faint hearted. It's not a tea party, <laughs> you know? So you, I mean, you've got Brett Walker on one side and Justin Gleason on the other side. It's not, it, it's, you know, it's high stakes stuff, you know? And so there are forensic choices here that are made. And so, you know, the underlying law operates in that context. So I think that's the, that's the fascinating thing about Porter and the ABC, that, you know, there's, you know, there's downside risk for everybody. And it was just a matter of who is going to blink first and Porter blinked first. It should also be noted that Shanks has applied to hear the case before a jury, which is particularly rare for a trial such as this. And Google has actually announced similarly, and that hearing is going to take place on a later date. Uh, both Shanks and Google, who've taken up the suit, have applied to hear the cases before a jury. Is this necessarily a common feature of a defamation case? And why might someone apply to have their case heard in this particular way? Well, so if you proceeded in a, a state court in Australia, other than in South Australia, um, so if the proceedings have been commenced in the Supreme Court of New South Wales, either party could have elected to have a jury. And so had Barilaro commenced those proceedings in the Supreme Court of New South Wales and um, Google and um, Shanks wanted a jury, then they just would have been able to elect to have one and it would be very difficult to um, interfere with that election. So South Australia and the ACT haven't had juries in civil matters for decades. Um, and the Northern Territory used the introduction of the National Uniform Defamation Laws to abolish juries in defamation cases, because apparently in 2005, looking back at the preceding three decades, that only had one jury. The Northern Territory has about one defamation case every three years. Um, so they weren't really going to miss anything if they abolished juries. Um, so the jury issue becomes important because one of the things that's happened in Australia since 2012 is the rapid expansion of the federal court's jurisdiction over jury cases. And so in the federal court, as you probably know, under Section 39 of the Federal Court of Australia Act of 1976, the presumptive mode of trial in the federal court is uh, trial by judge alone. Um, but Section 40 allows the federal court to order a jury in relation to a whole proceeding or a particular issue um, if it's in the interest of justice to do so. So from 2012 onwards, the federal court, following a full federal court decision in a case called Crosby and Kelly, which was one of the first Twitter defamation cases in Australia, 
the federal court discovered that it had jurisdiction over what are known as pure defamation cases. So defamation is not a cause of action in federal jurisdiction. The source of law for defamation is the common law affected by state or territory law. So described in that way, it's clear there's nothing within federal jurisdiction. So prior to 2012, you normally could litigate defamation in the federal court only in the associated or accrued jurisdiction of the federal court. So you needed something in um, federal jurisdiction. So the obvious cause of action would be misleading or deceptive conduct under the Commonwealth Australian Consumer Law. But Crosby and Kelly said, well, no. Um, if you're complaining about publication in one of the territories, then you can sue in the federal court just for defamation, for nothing else. And so particularly in New South Wales, rapidly from 2017 onwards, we've seen a massive increase in defamation cases being litigated in the federal court. So if you think about, you know, the big defamation cases, so Joe Hockey's defamation case, Jeffrey Rush's defamation case, the saga that is Ben Robert Smith's defamation case, they're just three very high profile off the top of my head defamation cases. All of those have been litigated in the federal court. And so particularly in Sydney now, and it's a very Sydney phenomenon, defamation cases are being litigated in the federal court. And so the presumptive mode of trial there is trial by jury. And so in a 2017 full federal court decision in uh, one of Mr. Charles' defamation proceedings, in this case, in Fairfax's uh, proceedings, um, the full federal court said, well, as a general rule, we're not going to order a jury in the federal court unless it's going to be a cause of action or going to be about um, an issue uh, which has been sort of controversial, you know, the subject of, you know, um, changing social or moral attitudes over the last 30 years or so. And so in Chow's case, they didn't order a jury. They're not really, you know, willing to order a jury. So here, Justice Rarey's um, who has the distinction of being the only judge of the federal court ever to order a jury in a defamation case, although having ordered it, the matter settled before trial because the plaintiff did not want a jury, um, which is why she had sued in the federal court. So here, Justice Rarey's applying Chow um, refused a jury. Now, different people have different ideas about whether juries are a good or a bad thing. Um, they certainly do add to the cost and complexity of proceeding, they do slow things down because you've got to get all the questions in order for the jury to answer. Um, they keep judges on their toes, but, you know, the, the standard that we're applying is the standard of the ordinary reasonable reader, and a jury is obviously, I think, much closer to that standard um, than a judicial officer, um, because your legal training and the life of, you know, a barrister and then a judge uh, which tends to be the career trajectory of these people, I think takes you somewhat further away from the ordinary reasonable reader, or in this particular case, the ordinary reasonable YouTube viewer. <laughs> Not sure how many people on the federal court are a big fan of, you know, YouTube videos. Yeah, that's, that's very fair. A key point that comes from this case is that Justice Rarez struck out Shank's truth defense, which actually made up a large part of his overall defense, in light of Barilaro's existing parliamentary privilege. Justice Rarus on parliamentary privilege noted that the law has developed processes to ensure that people outside parliament can scrutinise or criticise what is said under parliamentary privilege without being liable for defamation, only, quote, if they act without malice or are not unreasonable in publishing, 
unquote. So Justice Reyes makes the point here that Shanks was very considered in planning, scripting, and producing the videos in question, such as that they were not spontaneous or unprepared. The crux of the point is that Shanks, quote, chose what he said in it and how he said it, unquote. Shanks basically was, quote, not responding to an attack made by Mr. Barilaro on him under parliamentary privilege, unquote. Barilaro did not cause the situation. It, quote, arose because of the way in which Mr. Shanks chose to publish, unquote. So Justice Reyes goes on to say that, quote, it would be unfair to deprive Barilaro of the right to vindicate his reputation that Shanks attacked as such a result would convert parliamentary privilege into an instrument of oppression, unquote. Essentially, this would allow the publisher to be free to defame the other person with impunity, quote, on the basis that any defense of the publisher's attack would infringe on parliamentary privilege, unquote. I think we'll start by asking, firstly, what is parliamentary privilege and why does it exist? So this goes back to something fairly fundamental about our constitutional arrangements, which uh, takes us back to the 17th century, where all of the sort of great contests of our constitutional practice sort of cemented. And so in the lead up to the Glorious Revolution, um, particularly under the reign of James II, James II, when he was the Duke of York, loved to sue people for defamation and for scandal and magnatum, which was a particular statutory cause of action, uh, which yielded very significant damages. Uh, and, you know, there was a sort of significant uh, imposition on people who were members of parliament uh, being sued uh, or prosecuted for statements that they had made in the course of parliamentary proceedings. Uh, and so when they finally uh, evicted James II and he had to leave uh, England and when they invited William of Orange to come and be William III um, because... Um, he was a reliable Protestant as opposed to James II, who was a Catholic, which is obviously one of the sort of organising tensions of that time. One of the things that they insisted uh, were agreed to as part of the Bill of Rights, Article 9, which still forms a part of our law, is that nothing, that, uh, nothing can be done in a court of law to call into question anything said or done in Parliament. And so that really came out of um, the contest between James II and Parliament in the 1680s. And so this has been part of our um, constitutional arrangement six, six, since 1689. And so it's a privilege of um, the Parliament itself. So anything that's said during the course of parliamentary proceedings can't be sued upon. So you have absolute privilege from liability for defamation for anything said during the course of parliamentary proceedings. But it also has the effect, and we've seen this in the Barilaro and Shanks litigation, uh, it has the effect of making it difficult for people to rely on things that are said in the course of parliamentary proceedings um, to prove defences. But the purpose of it is to ensure that debates and proceedings of parliament are free from the threats of forms of litigation. And so does the nature of this principle impact the freedoms that individuals or media bodies have to criticise parliamentary figures? Well, it can, but I mean, one of the things that should happen, and I mean, one of the reasons that I think in the Barilaro and Shanks litigation, um, it hasn't yet been 
uh, viewed by Justice Rarys as a problem is that the defences as a whole haven't been excluded. It's just particulars of parts of the defences. And so if you're in a situation where you had a plaintiff who sued for defamation and the defendant's only defences relied upon proving defences based on material that was um, discussed in Parliament and parliamentary privilege there wasn't waived so that the defendant couldn't do that, then the proper course in that circumstance would be to permanently stay the proceedings because you couldn't have a fair adjudication of the plaintiff's claim if the defendant were not able to defend it in any way. So in something like the Barilaro and Shanks litigation, parts of the particulars relating to the truth defence and the comment defence were struck out on the basis that they infringed parliamentary privilege. But there are still other aspects of the defence which are able to be proven without reliance on parliamentary privilege or privilege that's um, subject to parliamentary privilege. So it's not, not in the same sort of same sort of set of circumstances one wouldn't have thought. So the general proposition would be if someone can't, by reason of parliamentary privilege, can't mount a defence at all, then it would actually be entirely unfair to that person to allow the proceedings to continue. So the, the proper course there would be to stay the proceedings, but that's not quite the position that we've got to with Barilaro and Shanks. All right. And I think at least that brings us to the end of our discussion on the materials regarding Shanks and Barilaro. Thanks so much, Professor, for that. So after investigating this case and having a good chat with um, Professor David Roll, Justin, what do you think about defamation law now? I think defamation law is incredibly complicated, and especially with regards to defamation law in New South Wales and in Sydney, um, is coming almost to some sort of head. There's a lot of things happening right now, which we won't go into today, this episode in particular, but we'll go through in another episode detailing some of the changes that are happening with respect to defamation law and why they're actually incredibly important. Um, a lot of high-profile cases have come through the courts recently. You know, Ben Robert Smith is currently being adjudicated, uh, Sarah Hansen Young, Barilaro, as we have right now, Christian Porter, as an example that we discussed at length with Professor Rolf, was... I think a really interesting case that had a lot of its own complexities. Um, it may not necessarily sound satisfying, but I, I guess the best way to say it is that each case must be appreciated on its own merits. Each case is uniquely complicated. Each case deals with the questions of its matter and the individuals behind it um, as they stand. And as they stand, they are very complicated. So maybe the best way to approach defamation law is to see it happen as it happens and just appreciate the way in which it ends up happening because it may be very hard to draw lots of connections and distinctions between all the things that we see happening all the time. Yeah, I definitely agree, especially with this case. I feel like defamation law has been something like in terms of the media we consume, a lot of it is international and it's really interesting to see it finally brought up in an Australian court and have Australian law applied. Um, especially since we watch a lot of media that comes from America, which you cannot, well, we don't really know about the jurisdiction that we have covering that. I mean, what can you say about um, 
an Australian YouTuber getting sued by an Australian politician. That's probably not happened too many times. There have been a lot of Twitter defamations. There have been a lot of newspaper defamations. Potentially, this is one of the you know, first of many YouTube defamation suits. And, of course, when this case eventually does get decided, we may get some interesting principles out of it. We may get genuinely nothing at all. I guess that is the way in which we see the law develop. But I think it was a wonderful chat with Professor Rolf, and it was a really interesting perspective that I think we both gained on the nature of this law. So that's it for today's episode. Um, if you want to do a little bit more research into defamation law, a great starting point would be our first episode on defamation law that was released in season two and was, I think, the last episode of that series. So feel free to check it out there. We have another episode on defamation law coming up that will concern the very infamous, or indeed the very kind of well-publicized Vola decision that you know took a lot of people's news feeds by storm. Until then, this is Justin signing off. And this is Jacinda signing off. We hope you have a wonderful day.